Please have a seat. Three years back, 2,000 Church of England uh, ministers were surveyed about their beliefs. One in three either doubted or denied Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, and one in four said that uh, they did not believe that Jesus' death paid for the forgiveness of our sins. So what are they teaching their churches this morning? That survey doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, in my Church of England training, uh, I had frequent conversations with fellow trainees who did not believe the gospel. I asked one, uh, what is the most important thing that you will have to offer people in your ministry? And he said, hope. And I said, meaning what? And he said, well, hope of uh, a better community, hope of a better world. I said, how about hope of being accepted by God and ultimately welcomed by him into heaven when you die? And he said, I really don't know about that. What's he teaching his church this morning? We're in a series on the Bible book of 2 Timothy. So far, it's been about the pressure from outside the church, from the culture around us, to be ashamed of the gospel. This morning, it switches to the pressure from inside the church, from unbelieving teachers, to move away from the gospel and lose the gospel. And some of us have experienced that within a, a local church and have had to move church because of it. All of us are experiencing it in the Church of England, the denomination that we are part of. So the Apostle Paul wrote the next bit of 2 Timothy to help Timothy face the problem of unbelieving teachers inside the church, or from now on, I'm going to call them false teachers, as the New Testament does. And what Paul said to Timothy then is also God's word on this problem for us today. So could you turn in the Bibles to page 995? That will get you to 2 Timothy. We pick it up again this week at chapter 2 and verse 14. Under the Bible translators heading, a worker approved by God, only I'm calling this what Bible teaching and teachers should be. What Bible teaching and teachers should be. So this is what you should look for and pray for in those who are the present and future teaching leaders of this church. But if you are in any teaching role yourself, uh, leading a small group, teaching our children and youth, speaking at JPCI, parenting, this is also what you should look to be and pray to be. So let me lead us in prayer now. Father, please show us from this part of your word how to keep your whole word central for the life and health of our church. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing Paul says here is Bible teaching should keep the gospel central. Bible teaching should keep the gospel central. Look down to 2 Timothy 2 verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things, which shows this was not just a personal letter from Paul to Timothy, you know, greetings from Rome, wish you were here, the gelato is great. It was a business letter where Paul gave Timothy things to say on his authority to the church he was in charge of. So verse 14, remind them 
of these things. Them was the church in Ephesus where Paul had sent Timothy to tackle the problem of the false teachers. These things are especially what he's just said that we looked at two weeks ago. So just look back to chapter 2 verse 8 where Paul has just reminded Timothy of the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. That's who it's all about. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And then halfway through verse 12, if you skip on to that, Paul has also just reminded Timothy of the dire seriousness of denying the gospel. If we deny him, that is, deny Jesus now, he also will deny us, that is, deny us entry into his kingdom of heaven in the end. Because you can't be part of a kingdom if you won't recognize the king of the kingdom. So when Paul says remind them of these things, I think he means, number one, remind them of the gospel, of Jesus and his death and resurrection, which are absolutely central to any of us being accepted by God and welcomed into heaven when we die. And number two, remind them of the dire seriousness of denying the gospel. So he goes on, verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now Paul only gives one clue about what these false teachers were saying. We'll come to it in a moment. Apart from that clue, we don't know what they were saying. Paul just describes results which were quarreling because false teaching is always divisive and spiritual ruin because false teaching always displaces the gospel. The gospel ceases to be central. And yet, these false teachers taught what they did from the Bible. 1 Timothy makes that very clear. These false teachers were biblical. They got up and did what I'm doing. But they still hadn't seen that the whole Bible centers on Jesus and what he did to put us right with God. They were still spiritually blind so that they could only misunderstand the Bible and they could only mislead people when they taught the Bible. And go down the road to any uh, gospel-denying church today and you'll find the same thing. The Bible will be read. The Bible will be taught. And that means precisely nothing. Because theological liberals all use the Bible. The question is, is the Bible taught in such a way that Jesus and his death and resurrection are absolutely central as the only way that you and I can be put right with God? Because that is what Bible teaching should do. And that's what verse 15 says. If you look on, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So that's saying, I am to teach the Bible, you are to teach the Bible in whatever role you have, remembering that the most important hearer is God himself and that we are accountable to him for what we teach. So the important question is not, you know, what will they think of this sermon or cipher talk or Bible study, but what will God think of it? That's the question. And we're to do our best to be faithful to his word because rightly handling it means getting it across as accurately and clearly as we can without downplaying or skirting the bits that we find difficult. 
And that is hard work, and that's why Paul calls the Bible teacher here a worker. That, that was the word they used for the laborer, the guy who's, who's out in the fields digging away for 10 hours. John Stott was one of the most well-used Bible teachers of the 20th century. You may have read something by him, and he was once asked on a preaching conference, Dr. Stott, what's the secret of your preaching? You know, tell us, tell us how we can just easily preach as good as you. And he replied, number one, hard work. Number two, hard work. And number three, hard work. But you and I need to work hard at listening as well, with open Bibles, checking that what is being said is a right understanding and a right application of the Bible. Because every Bible teacher you listen to, here, elsewhere, online, on paper, is perfectly capable of being a false teacher. Do you believe that? If you do, you will be an active listener, checking, checking, checking. So verse 15 is what we should be doing, and then verse 16 goes back to what we shouldn't be doing. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So like I said, we have no idea what the irreverent babble uh, was, but Paul describes more results. He describes ungodliness, because false teaching, it always lowers the bar of God's will for our lives. It always accommodates itself to sin, because it doesn't believe that God can change sinners like us. And Paul also describes the well-being and the peace of a church being eaten away like gangrene. And you may sadly have experienced that. Read on. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting, capsizing the faith of some. So that is the one clue about what these false teachers were actually saying. They were saying, the resurrection has already happened. Now, they weren't talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but about the resurrection of believers. And these false teachers would have come up to you and said, look, if you've come to faith in Jesus, you have experienced all the resurrection you are ever going to have. Jesus has raised you from being spiritually dead to living for him now, but that's it. There's no further resurrection. There's no bodily resurrection, which is false. But they probably said it because of what their culture believed. Their culture believed that your spirit inside was basically good, your body and all matter was basically bad, and so what you needed was to be freed from your body, which is what some Eastern religion would say. And that meant that in their culture, the last thing you wanted was a resurrection body. Ghastly idea. Now, the beliefs of our culture which conflict with the gospel are different. But the point is false teaching is very often caused by false teachers bringing the culture's beliefs into the church. And they take Bible words, Bible truths, and they redefine them in line with the culture's beliefs so that you've got the same words on the outside, like resurrection, but the meaning on the inside has been completely changed. Which means I think false teachers are like taxidermists. The people who stuff animals, you know, Nicole Kidman in Paddington 1. So they take the parrot or whatever, they remove what is inside the parrot, and they stuff it with something different. So it looks like you've still got a parrot when, in fact, you haven't. 
The false teacher takes the key words of the Bible, like resurrection, takes out the meaning completely, stuffs it with something different. So it looks like you've still got the gospel, and you haven't. So when verse 14 tells us not to quarrel about words, it certainly doesn't mean we don't take issue with false teaching. When the words of the gospel are being redefined and denied, we take issue with it. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not contradicting himself. So that's the first thing. Bible teaching should keep the gospel central. The second thing Paul says here is Bible churches should trust God and stand out from false teaching. Bible churches should trust God and stand out from false teaching. So in verse 18, Paul has painted the picture of false teachers denying the gospel and damaging people spiritually. And that, sadly, is the picture of our denomination and of all the main denominations in this country and of many an independent church as well, which is depressing. And it makes you wonder whether the church could collapse. So look on to verse 19, where Paul says, but. In other words, here's the other side of the picture. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, quote, the Lord knows those who are his, and quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So as we look at what people call the visible church, just what you can see, we see the false not only mixed in with the true, but often making up the majority of denominational leadership. But as God looks, he can see the invisible church. He can see who the true are. And Paul says, okay, imagine them as like a building, which he, with each genuine believer, uh, a brick in the building. And verse 19, he says, God's firm foundation stands. In other words, the metaphorical building of genuine believers, it's not going to collapse, despite the false teaching around it, because it is God who ultimately underpins it. It's God who brings people to faith, and it's God who keeps people believing through thick and thin, including false teaching. So we should be depressed by the state of the visible church around us here. I am. But we shouldn't be worried about those who make up the invisible church, that is, genuine believers, because God will keep them through thick and thin. And Bible churches should trust God for that and for their existence. And in the true and false mess of the, invisible, of the visible church, uh, verse 19 says, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who belongs to him today in, in this congregation and in every congregation meeting up and down the land. It's in quotation marks because it comes from the Old Testament, from Numbers chapter 16, which tells the story of a rebellion among God's Old Testament people in the days of Moses, led by a guy called Korah. So Korah was the false teacher of the day. He was denying what God said through Moses. Um, and Moses at one stage says to Korah, look, the Lord knows those who are his. In other words, God knows who are the true and who are the false here. And on that occasion, God actually showed who they were. Because he told Moses and the people, quote, to separate themselves from Korah and his crowd, to depart from them. And then he brought judgment on Korah and his crowd through what seems to have been an earthquake. And I don't know whether you sometimes wonder, you know, why doesn't God do things like that a bit more often? Why doesn't he clean out the false teaching from his church today? 
The thing is that when judgment falls like that, the opportunity to change sides is over, isn't it? And one reason why God allows the true and false mess of the visible church is to give people more opportunity to hear about Jesus and respond. And so patient and gracious is he that that opportunity is open to the false teachers and those who are following them, not to mention you and me. But then Paul quotes another bit of the Korah story at the end of verse 19. He says, quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So just like God told Moses and the people to depart from Korah over here, we're being told to depart from, distance ourselves from, protect ourselves from false teaching, which is my, my, my second heading was Bible, te- Bible churches should trust God and stand out from false teaching. And that's why we have been in what is called impaired communion with the last two bishops of Newcastle who've been unable to teach orthodox biblical things on key topics. And we'll need wisdom about how to relate to the denomination going forward as it considers more moves away from orthodoxy. Uh, You may actually have heard uh, Church of England bishops and ministers in the news talking about the possibility of a division over the issues in the denomination right now. And the principle of verse 19 says, the time may come when that is right, because the truth of the gospel must trump unity. Whereas by contrast, one unorthodox bishop in America said recently, if you face the choice between heresy and division, always choose heresy. In other words, unity at any price. Keep the club together. And Paul says, no, Bible churches should trust God and stand out from false teaching. The last thing Paul says here is Bible teachers should love people and care for their salvation. Bible teachers should love people and care for their salvation. He's told us what Bible teaching should be like. Now he's going to tell us what Bible teachers should be like. And remember, this isn't just about me. It's about the many of you who are Bible teachers here. So look on to verse 20. Now, in a great house like Cragside or Annick Castle, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, like the, uh, the silver serving dish for the dining room, Some for dishonorable, like the earthenware chamber pot in the bedroom, the overnight toilet. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Paul says, imagine the church is like this this great house, and each person in it is like one of the vessels or household articles. Well, the false teachers are like the dishonorable vessels, like the chamber pot, full of, well, full of what you don't want in the house, full of false teaching and the ungodly behavior and influence that comes from it. But that's not what we want to be. We want to be like the honorable vessels, like the silver serving dish, carrying the gospel and the Bible to others and setting them an example of what does it look like to have Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's what verse 21 is calling us all to do. Therefore, if anyone cleanses him or or herself from what is dishonorable, 
There'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so Paul goes on, verse 22, flee youthful passions. Um, This is one of several places where Paul refers to Timothy as young. In those days, they called people young up to 40 and then old over 40. Okay, they didn't have our invention of middle age, which is basically from 40 to whatever age you are. Um, And Timothy was probably between 30 and 40. So where it says flee youthful passions, Paul wasn't thinking of Timothy like he was a teenager falling for all the girls. There's nothing in the context to suggest Paul had that passion in mind. There is everything in the context to suggest that he has in mind the youthful passions that easily kick in when younger men meet opposition or people who need correcting. Not as if older men are not prone to this as well, but I guess Paul knew that a younger man like Timothy could be a hothead, could get angry easily, could happily win the argument but lose the person and never see them come across the church threshold again. That makes sense of what Paul says next. Verse 22, listen to this. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, in other words, what gets thrown back at him, correcting his opponents with gentleness so that they do come back because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I once asked a new face here at church, um, what do you do? And she said, I'm a teacher. And I said, what do you teach? And she said, children. And Paul would have loved that answer. Not, not maths, not history. I don't teach a subject. I teach children, people. And that's the point of these last verses. Yes, we're to teach the gospel from the Bible, but never forget we are teaching people. And people need loving, especially when they mess up or when they're hurting. People need patience when they're doubting and questioning the Bible in their dark moments. They need gentleness, for example, when they come out with half wrong or all wrong comments in small groups and so on and so on. Above all, they need Jesus. And Paul says we should be willing to put up with a very great deal from them as we try to bring the gospel to them. So although this is a passage about the negatives of false teaching, I want us to come away with these three great positives. Bible teaching should keep the gospel central. Bible churches should trust God and stand out from false teaching. And Bible teachers should love people and care for their salvation. Let's pray. Father God, in whatever way we are Bible teachers, from personal witness to public teaching, from parenting to small group leading, please help us to do the kind of Bible teaching and be the kind of Bible teachers that you can approve of. 
And please also give us faith and wisdom as a church to stand out from false teaching with patience, gentleness, and the hope that you will lead more and more people to a knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.